0: On November 4th, 1922, Howard Carter, an unexpected hero of Egyptology, along with his patron, the wealthy Lord Carnovan, would get the first glimpse at the previously undiscovered tomb of the boy king Tutankhamun, one of the most significant finds in modern archaeology. It would immediately capture the attention of the world. Its significance was not just important to archaeology, but would shape design and the way that people saw the world, particularly in cemeteries. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. Now I know I'm probably a little late to the game. Uh, A lot of people did centennial anniversaries back in November for the 100th anniversary of the initial discovery of the tomb. And Howard Carter would finally enter the burial chamber a little bit more than a year later. That was in February. But I still think it's a significant discovery to discuss because it's not often that funerary pieces of art actually influence new funerary pieces of art. You can argue that mausoleums being based on the mausoleum of Heliocarnassus, you can argue a lot of things, but this is one that just the sweeping breadth of Egyptomania. Really, if you look up, Egyptomania in any sense, the first place that they're going to talk about it is they're going to talk about it in cemeteries. Even though most people normally don't talk about cemeteries when they talk about developments in culture, this is a really significant example. So I think it's one that's worth talking about. On top of that, it's a fascinating story. While I generally focus specifically on American cemeteries, I think it's worth jumping across the pond and talking a little bit about this, because it does such a, have such a huge bearing on the trends that develop here in the United States. Howard Carter is an interesting and, quite frankly, unlikely hero. He's born in 1874, the son of a man named Samuel Carter, who was actually an illustrator who made his living painting portraits of dogs and horses for aristocrats. Howard was the youngest of 11 children, eight of whom survived to adulthood. And he's born in Kensington. So part of London, but quickly they moved back to where his parents are from. The possibly most British name ever, Swaffham. Um, and this is a really fortuitous step in young Howard's life because when they're there, they're very close to the Amherst family who are wealthy landed gentry. And they have a manor, which, again, in one of the most British names ever, is called Didlington Hall. And while he is growing up, he has the opportunity, because of kind of his father's place in society, because of their relationship with the family, to spend a great deal of time at the wonderfully named Didlington Hall, which includes a collection of Egyptian antiquities. And so he quickly becomes fascinated by this, not just by the antiquities themselves, but by the idea of Egypt. Also, starting as a young man, he follows in his father's footsteps and becomes quite accomplished in drawings, renderings, all forms of art, which is pretty significant. Now, Lady Amherst, in the way of all British aristocrats, was very benevolent towards the peasants. And so... As Howard grew, she supported him to what was known as the Egyptian Exploration Fund. And basically, this was to give opportunities for individuals who are looking for this. It's probably a good time to mention that archaeology, while certainly it has existed for a long time, was very much a gentleman's game. This was something that wealthy hobbyists did. And a lot of our modern social sciences start in a very similar way. Anthropology, sociology, all of these don't start off as formal professions with degrees. They are basically amateur enthusiasts who collect things, who start to dig around. And this is very much the trend for quite a long time. Odds are, if you were working in archaeology, anthropology, any of these fields, it meant that you had money. You had disposable income and you probably didn't work for a living or you didn't have to work for a living. And this is no exception. So, he goes on his first dig in Egypt with a man named Percy Newberry at the age of 17. And he is sent specifically as an artist. And it's worth noting that this role in archaeology is pretty important. A lot of the information that gets out, a lot of the popularity of antiquity comes from these very detailed artistic renderings. At this point in history, you have just the beginnings of formal photography. Photography is expensive, it requires a lot of equipment, and so it's not always a practical solution to take with you when you're roughing it out in the middle of nowhere. So having a resident artist along, first of all, helped you to document the site in terms of mapping it out, in terms of showing where things were found, but also in taking artistic renderings, particularly of things like hieroglyphics and other types of tomb decoration. So having a skilled artist on staff was really important. And this is the reason that Howard Carter quickly finds a place in the world of Egyptology, even though he's not one of these wealthy men. So he works very early on with a couple of really significant tombs. Probably the one that he's most noted for in terms of his artistic ability is um, documenting the finds in the tomb of Hachiput. But overall, he becomes very popular on the scene. And so what happens is that he starts to work his way onto other digs. Um, So he was on the excavation of Discovering Hatchi Puts' tomb in 1902. Um, He worked um, on the tomb of Thutmose IV. He's involved in a number of these really significant digs. And as a result, by 1899, the Inspector of Monuments for Upper Egypt is awarded to him. So at the time in Egypt, if you were a European and you were working on one of these sites, these were overseen by the Egyptian Antiquity Service. Now, it's worth noting that Egypt, most people would probably call it a British colony. Technically, it was not, but it was largely occupied by the British for a long time. A lot of this had to do with the construction of the Suez Canal, controlling the rights to that, which was very profitable in trade. As a result, there was very much a gentleman's agreement that a lot of these wealthy patrons who were working on digs there, they were working with the system. And as a result, the Egyptian Antiquities Service was largely staffed by Europeans, including Howard Carter. So in 1904, he's transferred to Lower Egypt. And there's a reason for this. And it's a pretty famous case where there was basically a disagreement between local Egyptian guards. Again, the local Egyptians worked with the antiquity service, often in the role of guards, often in the role of laborers. So, a fight between them and some drunk French tourists. And Howard Carter steps in and he takes the side of the Egyptians, which is not a popular opinion because these French tourists, a lot of this money that comes from it, and a lot of the emphasis on really holding Europeans to a higher standard. This is a very unpopular opinion. He basically gets demoted. They send him to a different region because he's being dressed down. So this will eventually lead to him resigning and he spends three years unemployed. And during this time, he falls back on painting. He basically is doing tourist paintings that he sells. It's also during this time that he is building up his reputation again Based on his renderings, based on his skill set, and by 1907 he begins working for Lord Carnovan. Now, Lord Carnovan is exactly one of these people that I described. He, along with his daughter Lady Ellaville and Herbert, are very interested in antiquities. They have a sort of gentleman's interest in it. They like to show up when there's something good to see. Now, Carnovan is perhaps best known for his house. Highclere Castle. So if you're a Downton Abbey fan, that was the house seat of the Carnovan family. They are very, very wealthy, obnoxiously so. And so what happens is, is starting in 1907, he gets into the Egyptian game and he starts to conduct these investigations. And Howard Carter is one of his employees that helps carry things out on the ground. Now, this is going to be a very Long standing relationship between Carter and Carnovan. Obviously, he doesn't discover the tomb of Tutankhamun for another 15 years. So, during that 15 year period, he works on a number of digs and definitely contributes to the discovery of a lot of them. Of course, if you ask anybody what Howard Carter is famous for, they will tell you it's King Tut's tomb, or as it is known in the parlance of the Valley of Kings, as KV 62. Now King Tut's tomb is significant for a number of reasons. First of all it is so highly intact and by intact I mean a lot of tombs are broken into both in antiquity and the modern age and are ridiculously looted. So it's incredibly intact. Second it's largely forgotten. Obviously they know it's there and they are looking for it but it is largely forgotten in terms of its location and even some of the facts that we know about King Tutankhamun's life. The third is just the scope and scale. There are over 5,000 items that will be found in this tomb. So makes it one of the largest and most significant halls in all of antiquity. Let's stop for a second and talk a little bit about Thebes and the Valley of Kings. Thebes is located within what is today the modern city of Luxor. Luxor has two really significant sites, the Luxor Temple and Karnak. And then on the west bank, you have the Theban necropolis. Thebes is located in southern Egypt, roughly 500 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. And it was the capital of Egypt through much of the Middle and New Kingdom. In antiquity, it does fall out of popularity. So it's really big for a certain period of time and then it goes into decline. So imagine if Rome were just abandoned, largely, and then it went into decline after that versus continuing on into a modern city. There is a long period where Thebes basically dies out into nothing, and then eventually the modern city of Luxor will be rebuilt there. It's estimated that it had a population of about 40,000 around 2000 BC. It's alternately known as the City of the Scepter and the Heliopolis of the South. Setting aside the city itself, if we go over to the west bank of the Nile to the Theban Necropolis, this is the one that really is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's one of the most significant places for funerary art architecture and just overall history in terms of understanding the Egyptians the way that they treated death their overall belief system within this area there are a couple of things so the necropolis is the overarching term there are three parts of this the first is the mortuary temples mortuary temples served a couple of purposes But these were kind of the physical places that people actually visited. In addition to preparations, ceremonies, and things that were done there at the time of death, this is also where people would go annually during the number of festivals that celebrated the different gods to make offerings to remember those who had died. So these were things that were, if not in continuous use, regularly used. Now, the other sections are the royal necropolis, both the Valley of the Kings and the Valley of the Queens. And then there was a separate necropolis that was more for the nobles and common people. It's a bit of a misnomer to say Valley of the Kings and Valley of the Queens as if these are the only people who are buried there, because that's actually not the case. In reality, you had a mixture. And a lot of this had to do with the relationships and the way that the Egyptians treated life after death with the idea of servitude, with the idea of connections between different groups. We know that the Valley of the Kings specifically was in use for roughly 500 years, mostly in the New Kingdom from the 18th through the 20th dynasties of ancient Egypt. There are 63 tombs and chambers within the valley. And the term is, so some are formal tombs with many rooms. I believe the largest is over 100 rooms. Some of them are mere shallow pits and chambers, things that may have been used briefly were for lesser burials were used as part of the construction. Within that area, only about 20 actually represent royalty. Only 20 are actually kings within the Valley of Kings. And it's an interesting area because it is indeed a valley with steep limestone cliffs. As a result, the valley flash floods a lot. So one of the main reasons that the tomb of King Tut remained concealed as long as it was is because it is down at the valley floor. So there are a handful of these, the the KV60s really, which were at the bottom. So the tombs, when they start, they start up at the top along the cliffs and then they slowly go down towards the bottom. And the ones at the bottom, because of the flash flooding, that rushes through the valley, eventually were covered in tons and tons and tons of debris. Historically, when we think about burials of Egyptian kings, we think about the pyramids of Giza, of course. This is very different. These were built purposely to try to protect the burials because obviously looting was always an issue. The design is very different. And while the interiors are elaborate, the exteriors really are not. With a little bit of context let's talk about this numbering system. So when I talk about KV, the KV stands for King's Valley. There are today KV-1 through KV-64. This numbering system was developed in 1827 by a man named John Gardner Wilkinson, and it is still the system that we use today. When he started, he numbered the 21 known tombs at the time. It's Important to understand, too, that there are two separate sections of the Valley of the Kings. There is the East Valley, which is where the overwhelming majority of the tombs are. So that is where the KVs are. Then there is the West Valley, where there are only four tombs. If people go there, tourists who go there, they almost are always in the East Valley. There's far more to see. Today, there is only one tomb that is open in the West Valley, um, the Tomb of I, A-Y, The numbering system also travels with the valley, so it begins at the entrance and then moves south. So this is the reason that when we get to King Tut's tomb, which is one of the later ones discovered, KV-62, it's basically two from the end. There have been two chambers discovered since then, the most recent being 2012. And even those they're claiming are not new discoveries, these are some of the smaller or shallower chambers that were initially dismissed. They weren't seen as being tombs. But since then, we know and they've kind of learned more and they can establish that they were. At the time of Howard Carter's investigations there, the valley actually more closely resembled a quarry because between the flash flooding and the previous excavations was there had been a lot going on there he had actually participated in two or three of them himself they were dumping debris so at some points on the valley floor there were up to 30 feet of debris and the real unsung heroes of this whole story are the egyptian workers because they did the backbreaking labor literally of hauling 30 feet of limestone debris out in baskets dumping it into hand carts and getting it toted out of the valley. In 1918, when he was doing this investigation, so one of the important things to know about this is that this was a long-running investigation. Carter's a little bit wily here, and I think it's a worthwhile story because it tells a little bit about the way that his mind worked. So in 1918, the workers on his project discovered basically the foundations and remains of huts And these huts had belonged to the workers who helped to build tombs. And this is about 40 feet from KV 55. KV 55 was the tomb of Ramesses VI, who was essentially from the same period of history as King Tut. And so Howard Carter takes this information and kind of files it away. That's interesting. Why would these workers' huts be here? What could this mean? But he files it away. He proceeds, Carnovan gets increasingly frustrated. Carter was more of a methodically-minded scientist than a dogged tomb hunter, and I think it's worth noting here. Quote, most of Carter's activities in the valley were like this, designed to settle some scholarly questions on the dating and origins of the tomb. So while he understood that for a patron... The hope was that you would make an incredible discovery, something that would put you on the map, have every newspaper in the world writing about you, and also maybe make you pretty wealthy. For Howard Carter, as a consummate Egyptologist, he was more interested in what can we learn along the way? What does this investigation reveal about the history of the place? And that's the big difference. However, he was also smart enough to know that he didn't have the means to do this work on his own and that without a wealthy patron, he was going to be back to selling paintings to tourists again. So he files away this piece of information until Carnovan is ready to pull the plug. And at this point, this is when Carter chooses to drop this truth on him. Hey, we found these huts. This could be something on November 4th, 1922, the excavation stumbles upon stone steps. And these stone steps are leading down. They, again, are mostly covered in debris, but they are leading somewhere, not far from where these workers' huts' ruins were found. At this point, he reaches out to Lord Carnova and says, you need to come to Egypt because this is your game. So several weeks later, November 24, 1922, they excavate to the outer doorway. Then on November 26, 1922, Carter, along with Lord Carnovan, Lady Evelyn Herbert, his daughter, and a man named Alexander Ander Callender, who was a retired railroad engineer who had been Carter's right-hand man and was helping with the logistics of clearing the valley, all go down and they peer through a small hole that they poke in the outer doorway. And it's at this point they take a peek in. Just a peek to prove that there is enough there to warrant someone coming out. Because they are not authorized to visit yet. They need to get the Department of Antiquities to come out and to investigate. Now, depending on the source that you read, and I read this in a couple of different books and a couple of different articles. Supposedly, they crawled through a tiny hole and they did their own investigations that night. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Hard to say. So the following day on November 27th, they received the inspection and on November 29th, 1922, it is officially opened in the presence of officials and dignitaries. This is when things start to heat up because as soon as they enter this outer chamber, they see a couple of things. The first is they see the seal of the Royal Necropolis. And this is pretty significant because this indicates that this is exactly what they had been hoping for. So the seal of the Royal Necropolis shows Anubis, the jackal god, over eight bound captives. And so this indicates that they indeed have found a royal tomb. Carter wrote in his diary on November 5th, 1922, right after the discovery, quote, It was a thrilling moment for an excavator to suddenly find himself after so many years of toilsome work, Arguably, this was done by Egyptians, but you know what, Howard? You keep telling yourself that. I was on the verge of what looked like a magnificent discovery. An untouched tomb. The antechamber, when they go in, when they open up that initial door, I saw one description that said, it looked like the property room of an opera for a vanished civilization. Because the grave goods that were left in King Tut's antechamber, they ranged from a wide variety of things. Jewelry, furniture, clothing, games and trinkets going back to his childhood, fans, a model boat, a hunting chariot, all sorts of jumbled items. And so when you look, it really does look like somebody's attic that you just stumbled into that has multiple generations of a family, all of their detritus packed in there. And this is the reason that it takes a decade to empty this tomb out to catalog all of these items, because many of them are incredibly fragile after being there for thousands of years. So they have to be incredibly careful that things literally don't disintegrate to dust when they get ready to move them and catalog them. The inner chamber will take longer. So it is not until February of 1924 that Howard Carter will actually glance upon the mummy. So, of course, that's at the core of all of this, because we are talking about a burial chamber. And that's something sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle of when we're talking about these things. It was in February that they first opened the burial chamber, but it won't be until a year after that. Now, it's worth mentioning that something big happens in the aftermath, and that is that Lord Carnovan actually does die. So Carnovan dies on April 5th, 1923, of blood poisoning. I have seen this is from him using a dirty knife to cut off a mosquito scab, which talk about a terrible way to die. Regardless, this is where sort of the myth of, you know, the curse of King Tut's tomb comes from, is this terrible, unfortunate occurrence after Carnovan has funded Howard Carter and his exhibitions for 15 years. This is how it ends. And so ironically, he never gets to see the interior sarcophagus. It is Howard Carter who looks upon it. And this arguably is probably one of the world's most recognizable images. Uh, The death mask of Tutankhamun, which is in the Museum in Cairo today. It's something that everybody has seen a depiction of in a textbook, um, on the cover of, you know, a children's book. It's everywhere. This is one of the most common images of ancient Egypt. Howard Carter described the burial chamber saying, quote, Many and disturbing were our emotions. Most of them were voiceless. But in that silence to listen, you could almost hear the ghostly footsteps of the departing mourners. This really is something that Howard Carter will take through to the end. He really does make this fully his. As I mentioned, the full cataloging of the tomb would not be completed until 1932, so long after Carnovan is dead. The ironic thing is, is that Great Britain really does not appreciate Howard Carter for this. Um, he receives the Order of the Nile from the Egyptian government, an honorary doctorate from Yale. He is honored by Spain, so he's honored by a number of different entities, but never really by his own country. Um, and I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that he was a commoner and he did not have that pedigree, so Carnovan largely got the credit for this discovery, even though it really wasn't his. He just paid for it. He would publish a number of books, Howard Carter, specifically on Egyptology. Five years' of exploration at Thebes, Thutmose the Fourth, um, the tomb of Tutankhamun. Of course, he would go on to. Work in archaeology the rest of his life, but never quite achieved the same level of grandeur as he did with the discovery of the Tomb of Tutankhamun. He would go on to be a consultant for both um, the Detroit Institute of Arts and the Cleveland Museum. Um, He toured all around the world, including the United States, to massive acclaim, talking about what he discovered. The rest of his life, he alternated between Egypt, where he had a house in Luxor, not far from his great discovery, And then he would go back to London. So basically, he was Luxor in the winter, London in the summer. He was never married and had no children. Uh, Again, I've seen speculation that he could have been gay. Um, A lot of people speculated that he had an affair with Eleanor, uh, excuse me, Evelyn Herbert, which has largely been disproved. Um, I get the sense that he, (laughs) he was just a giant nerd, and I think he liked doing his own thing. Howard Carter died March 2nd, 1939, at the age of 64 from complications from cancer. He was buried at Putney Vale Cemetery, which is in the southwest of London, um, close to Wimbledon and Richmond. Established in 1891, uh, Putney Vale is actually probably more famous for its crematorium, which was added in 1938. Lovely little cemetery, some beautiful architecture there, um, Interestingly enough, um, Evelyn Beecham, born Evelyn Herbert, the daughter of Lord Carnovan is also buried there. Um, a couple of other famous people you're probably familiar with, um, probably biggest name is that most people would be familiar with is Bruce Ismay, who was the head of the White Star line. He is the villain in Titanic. He is the one that kept pushing for the ship to go faster and faster. Um, and then bailed on the ship. He did survive the sinking, but was haunted by it for the rest of his life. Um, David Lean, if you're a film buff and are a fan of Bridge on the River Kwai, among many, many others. um, It's an exceptional little cemetery, um, but I think that the biggest thing that I think is really remarkable is Carter's grave. So his grave there... You know, I I was intrigued because when I looked at the stone, the stone does not appear to be of an appropriate age to actually have been his original headstone. It is a very shiny, shiny, polished granite, dark gray, polished granite. It has almost too much of a modern feel to it. I tried to search and see if this was maybe like a tribute stone that was placed later by people who were dedicated followers of his even for 1939 and you know he lives a pretty significant life after um the discovery of King Tut which definitely disproves the whole curse of the mummy thing if you look at this headstone it it just does not to me scream 1940 or that era um it's a very traditional um folks plant bulbs there there are lots of offerings that are left there people who are fascinated by him um it does read, Howard Carter, Egyptologist, discoverer of the tomb of Tutankhamun, 1922, along with his birth and death dates, and has a rather remarkable epitaph. And the epitaph actually comes from his discovery, appropriately enough. So it comes from the wishing cup of Tutankhamun, which of course is found in the tomb. And so on the headstone itself, it says, quote, may your spirit live, may you spend millions of years You who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. And then on the curbing, at the foot, basically the foot of the grave, it reads, O night, spread thy wings over me as the imperishable stars. So quite poetic, and that's why I kind of wonder if he selected this himself, or this was something that was dedicated later in tribute. I did a little bit of searching, and I really couldn't find anything. So I don't have an answer about that. But uh, I suspect that that is the case just based on the overall design. All right. So, aside from that, let's switch over and talk a little bit about what happens next. And this is probably where I should stop and say that it's really nothing new. Because yes, with Howard Carter touring the world, with him going out on this basically publicity tour... There's a lot of attention brought to Egypt and there is definitely a wave of Egyptomania. But if you look at history, this is not the first one and it's certainly not the first one in American cemeteries. Fascination with Egypt goes back to antiquity. The Greeks and the Romans largely were fascinated by Egypt as well. So in 31 BC, Egypt is conquered by Augustus. So this is kind of the first wave. In the Renaissance, it's rediscovered when they rediscover the writings of Herodotus. You have another wave that happens with Napoleon's invasion. I already mentioned that. So Napoleon, between 1798 and 1801, is there. He is one of the first to map the Valley of the Kings for Western use and things like that. This continues again 20 years later when Jean-Francois Champollion. Champollion, um, deciphers hieroglyphics using the Rosetta Stone. I'm sure everybody's heard that story in 1822. The Crystal Palace Expedition in London in 1854 had a great Egyptian court that again brings popularity to Egyptian culture. The completion of the Suez Canal in 1869, continued by the occupation of Egypt in 1882. You have lots of monuments that are going up that are associated with this. So there's wave upon wave upon wave of these. So why? Why did Egypt keep coming back into the imaginations of people? Why were people in different countries always fascinated with Egypt? Well, if you go back to the episode that I did out in Mount Auburn Cemetery, a lot about Romanticism and the idea of the sublime, this supernatural force of nature. Well, the romantics were fascinated with Egypt, and you can see a number of paintings, the most famous being the seventh plague of Egypt, where they identify Egypt as being the source of sublime romanticism. And there's a reason for this. So think back to your Bible stories. Think about the plagues of Egypt. Think about the miracles of Moses. Think about some of these extreme stories. And Egypt comes up time and time again. Historian Richard White also argues that Egypt continues to fascinate people because it is neither African, despite the fact that it's located in Africa, nor Asian. He calls it everybody's past. It is a collective past that we can all associate with. And largely because these individuals, at least as they have been portrayed, do not appear to be typically african they don't appear to be typically asian because of that they are treated kind of as the white ideal for ancestors you don't have to feel awkward about holding the civilization up because they fit the ideal of a white society their writing their language their technology all of that is never portrayed as being pagan or heathen really Despite the fact that this takes a little bit of moral justification, they really are held up pretty closely. You can see lots of fascination with this. So if you look at authors, for example, Edgar Allan Poe, Louisa May Alcott, Nathaniel Hawthorne, even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, all are writing short stories about Egyptian culture. If we look to the cemetery side, it's literally everywhere. Think about how many cemeteries I've talked about. Well, just in the history of American cemeteries, both Grove Street Burial Ground and Mount Auburn Cemetery, before you even enter the cemetery, both of them have gates that are Egyptian Revival. When we talk about Egyptian Revival, this is probably a good place to stop and talk about exactly what we mean. So there are certain architectural forms, the most common being the obelisk. The obelisk represents a ray of light. The ray of light is associated with the sun god Ra. Likewise, the winged orb that you see represents the sun moving through the sky. The Ankh, also another very common symbol. This is the symbol of life in Egyptian religion. Pyramids, obviously this one's self-explanatory. The Sphinx is a physical protector, which is often placed outside a burial place. The portal, these archways, very common, representing the gateway to the eternal life. The mastaba, this is another one that's very common. So when you look at the gates of both Mount Auburn and Grove Street Burial Ground, this is with the slanted walls moving upward from top to bottom. This is also very common when you look at the Valley of the Kings. This is the style there. So that is also equally represented along with pyramids. And then lastly, the big decorative element that everybody's probably familiar with is the lotus, and the lotus represents rebirth. So all of these, both architectural forms as well as elements, can be found on funerary monuments, they are found on mausoleums, they are found on gateways, they are even found in buildings like chapels. It is worth noting, and I said this earlier, and this is not entirely true, that they did not view the Egyptians as pagan. Again, this is not exactly true. What you will see is that often funerary monuments in cemeteries, particularly in the rural cemetery movement, that take on the Egyptian revival form are often softened. And they're softened using certain Christian symbols. So, for example, if you have a pyramid or a mausoleum that is overwhelmingly Egyptian revival, Often there may be an angel outside the door incorporated into the design to give it the idea of Christian resurrection. Some go straight up and they have the Sphinx, but there is often a softening. For example, when you see draped obelisks, it's a little bit less aggressively pagan and it helps to put this veil of Christianity over this idealized Egyptian architecture. A lot of these places do not originally have them. So you'll probably remember that Grove Street Burial Ground, while it's founded in 1796, does not actually get its gateway until much, much later. Mount Auburn's Gate, of course, is the gold standard. It's featured in guidebooks. It's featured in newspaper articles. It definitely sets the precedent for the use of Egyptian revival design. Now... Jacob Bigelow, who was one of the founders of Mount Auburn, was a huge advocate of this. He also later will install a sphinx within the cemetery. And what he specifically says is, quote, the early Egyptians built neither for beauty nor for use, but for eternity. And so it was seen as the most appropriate architectural style to use, regardless of denomination or even the era. You have um, the old Jewish burial ground in Newport um, at Truro Synagogue. That's an interesting one because the gates there are installed in 1843, but they are actually a replica of the gates um, that are built for the old granary burial ground in Boston three years earlier in 1840. There's a lot of mixing because on those you have Egyptian revival gates that have inverted torches. So they are mixing these styles, but again, this lingering fascination that comes from Egyptomania really never goes away. There is also a certain amount of hubris in using these symbols. Young America, as I've often talked about, really was struggling to find its identity. And by associating their historic sites with the great civilization of Egypt, they're definitely fulfilling a niche and trying to build up their identity. Now, of course, no place is this more evident than probably our most famous Egyptian monument, which is the Washington Monument, which is completed in 1884. But prior to that, the Bunker Hill Monument, which is completed in 1842, also Egyptian revival. The Franklin Monument at Old Granary Burial Ground, it's actually placed there in honor of Benjamin Franklin's parents, was a replica. Um, It actually replaced an earlier brick monument, and it was completed in 1829. It's a pyramid So in all of these bastions of American history, where we are memorializing famous American battles, the father of our nation, George Washington, ironically, we are choosing Egyptian monuments, which helps to elevate our culture. By doing that, people see a physical connection between our culture as a young nation and the Egyptian revival, which links us with this great ancient civilization. We are putting ourselves up on a pedestal through this visual representation of history. Now, we're not the only ones who are doing this. So, for example, over in England, if you go to Highgate Cemetery, you know, the the big one of the Magnificent Seven cemeteries that ring London, the inner circle is called the Circle of Lebanon, and there is an entire Egyptian circle where there are these Egyptian revival tombs. There as well, um, Cleopatra's Needle is installed um, in 1878, which is a massive obelisk that's on the banks of the Thames. It never really goes away, and certainly it doesn't stop in the 1920s either. So almost immediately following this Egyptomania that sweeps the country, you see a lot of things. You see it in theaters that are named the Cairo. You see that there is an inspiration. There's a lot of overlap between some of the Art Deco architecture and Egyptian revival. But also in cemeteries, it immediately appears again where you start to see a revival of the tomb designs, of these arches, all of these things that had been previously popular at the height of the rural cemetery movement start to sneak back in in the 20s. You also start to see on smaller headstones, and it was interesting, I was flipping through, I believe, a Montgomery Ward tombstone catalog from 1929. And even though they're not specifically marketed as being Egyptian in style, these monuments have a ton of these lotus-like flowers on them. They have an incredible amount of detailing that is very distinctively Egyptian flavored. And even the shapes, that portal shape, a lot of that becomes far more common. After this happens and this diffusion of culture and it will come again in 1963 after the movie Cleopatra starring um, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor is released you have another wave of Egyptomania and if you look at old fashions from that time period there's definitely an influence if you look at the makeup and that long kind of Cleopatra cat eye all of these things come around again and again. And hopefully by putting it into context and looking at it in terms of, you know, why are we so attracted to this Egyptian culture? How has it been reframed in our language? That really explains it. What does it look like today? Well, today, if you really have a burning desire to, you can go to the Valley of Kings. It's estimated between four and 5,000 individuals do visit the Valley of the Kings every day to see the tombs. Most of these individuals are going to be over in the East Valley, as I already mentioned, by King Tut's tomb, which is by far the most popular. There are 18 tombs open, not all necessarily at the same time. And unsurprisingly, King Tut's tomb has an extra fee to see it because it is the big one. And if you go to Cairo, you can see that death mask in person. Howard Carter, was he a good guy or bad guy in history? I'll leave that up to you. But certainly a fascinating story of kind of an underdog in the entire story of Egyptology. And I think just a fascinating example of how death and funerary culture can largely influence and be a reflection both of cultural values and can influence cultural values. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, Would greatly appreciate a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, almost all major platforms have an ability for you to leave a five-star review. It helps make me much more searchable when people are looking for quality cemetery content. In addition to that, please follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram for lots more tidbits and a glimpse into some of my adventures. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen and this is Tomb of the View.